morning, turn to Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8, let's stand together. We're going to read two verses this morning and uh, try to give you a few thoughts from the Word of God. Trust that the Lord will help us magnify the Lord and help you here today. Romans chapter number 8, beginning in verse number 29, we'll read verse 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Father, we bow in your presence today. We thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the reality of God that's been manifest in our hearts and in our midst here today. Thank you, Lord, we don't worship a dead God. We don't worship dead idols, dumb idols. Lord, we don't worship just the uh, ideas or the thoughts of men. But, Lord, we worship the true and the living God. And, Lord, you've manifest yourself here today, and we're grateful for that. Lord, as we consider the Word of God and what it says concerning you and your dealings with us, I pray you would open our hearts to the truth contained in it. Apply to our lives, Lord, all that we need to walk, a li- to walk in this life according to your word, and be pleasing in your sight. Lord, just help us continue to speak to hearts, continue to manifest your presence. We'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preach this morning on the certainty of our sanctification. The certainty of our sanctification. As sure and as certain as our redemption is, so is our sanctification. And so I want to look at that this morning from these two verses. Uh, just by way of introduction, uh, as you already heard as we read these verses, uh, we're going to be looking at the painstaking links that God went to accomplish our sanctification. Um, of course, we're in the book of Romans, that's obvious. Remember, we are in that portion of, of Scripture that covers chapter 6, 7, and 8 where the theme of these chapters, if you will, is the sanctification of the Holy Ghost in the life of the believer, uh, how that God brings to pass sanctification in our lives. And here the Word of God is continuing to emphasize God's purpose in saving us, and that is to sanctify us. God saved you to make you holy. God saved me to make me like Jesus. That's his ultimate goal. We see it here in the text. You might say God's purpose in saving us is that we will be conformed to the image of his son. That is the underlying theme of the text, but it is surrounded by a great deal of theology. And of course, as you think about sanctification, you cannot think about sanctification without thinking about your salvation. You cannot separate sanctification from salvation. They are both intrinsically connected. They're essential, the one to the other. In fact, you can't have one without the other. The one, indeed, it flows from the other. Sanctification is the natural process of being born again. It is the natural fruit that flows out of the life of a genuine believer. Now, in considering our text today, we come face to face with some words that are loved by some and hated by others. 
Uh, these are words that invoke joy and uh, adoration in some. These are words that invoke frustration and hatred in others. And still, confusion and perplexity in a few. And uh, I'll be honest, there's times I stand amazed at some of the things I read in the Word of God and I have to scratch my head and say, well, God's God, I'm not, and I know He's got it all under control. But I want to say, being that I am a preacher that preaches through the books of the Bible as we do, and seeing that I preach through every verse in every book of the Bible that I preach through, these are words we're going to deal with today. And verses in the Scripture that we're going to deal with in its context and in their original and intended meaning in mind. Now, our entire lives, and don't let me lose you, please stay with me this morning. Our entire lives we have been taught what salvation and sanctification looks like from the human perspective. And that is understandable. That is good. I get it. Uh, In fact, it's necessary because that is our current perspective. I'm not where God is, and I am not God, and I don't look at things the way God does, though I know in the Bible I'm taught to trust Him because He sees the whole picture. But from my viewpoint, I am on earth. And uh, it is the viewpoint that is most directly applying to my life that I have looked at salvation and sanctification through for the majority of my life. And I know the same is true for you. We have heard and we do preach from this pulpit. And we have practiced such words as repent, believe, and surrender. And those are words that highlight the responsibility of man to the gospel. That God commands men everywhere to repent of their sin. To turn from their wrongdoing. To trust Jesus with all their heart. And to surrender their will to His. To serve Him and live for Him. As believers though, I believe we are keenly aware of our responsibility to God. And that is why Joshua in the Old Testament said to the people of Israel, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now in Romans chapter 8 verse 29 and 30, the Holy Spirit reveals what sanctification looks like from God's perspective. Okay? And so I'm just making the groundwork, I'm laying the groundwork here saying we look at sanctification and we look at salvation oftentimes, and rightfully so, from our viewpoint, from our vantage point. But here the Word of God is going to show us what sanctification looks like from God's point of view. And this is nonetheless true, even though it be from God's point of view. As I've said, most of us, when we got saved, we got saved understanding we were sinners in need of a Savior. We got saved knowing that if we died, we'd die and go to hell. Uh, We got saved uh, trusting in the Lord for our salvation, turning from our sin. And uh, that's how it was for us. And as a result, we continued in sanctification and living for God in a very practical way. Way We have looked at what God's called us to do. Be ye holy as I am holy. To walk in holiness and, and to be a separate people. And to look different, talk different, act different, live different. We don't live like the world. That's the practical side that I'm responsible for. And so are you. 
But what a wonderful discovery it is after we've been saved for some time to learn that God was thinking of us long before we ever started about thinking of Him. Aren't you glad to know that this morning? That's been the delight of my heart. I didn't know that as a 13-year-old boy. I didn't know that really until I started studying as a preacher and I started digging in to the Word of God and all of a sudden a whole realm of, of a reality of revelation was opened up to my heart that showed me that God was thinking of me before I ever started thinking of Him. And what a wonderful discovery that was. And part of His thoughts towards me, part of His thoughts towards us and His purpose for our lives includes making us holy. And while we'll never be able to comprehend the length, the height, the, the breadth of God's plan and purpose for our lives, you and I have a duty to study the Word of God. You and I have a responsibility to grow as best we can in our understanding of God's purpose, both in salvation and sanctification. I believe the deeper understanding will result in a deeper appreciation. I believe the more you understand and seek to know of God's dealings with you in salvation and in sanctification will make you love Him more. It will make you respect Him more and it will make you appreciate Him far more for what He has wrought in our lives by Jesus Christ. I want to say this, as I studied this, and even last night I was up late just looking over and praying and reading notes, and when I consider the planning, I mean, when I think about the thoughtfulness, when I think about the, the, the sacrifice, when I think about the wisdom, when I think about all of the, the painstaking uh, effort and, and extent, that God took on, that God went through to save me, it's overwhelming this morning. I have to say as the hymn writer, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder why He'd love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Let me say it's alright this morning to start out the Christian life understanding that you were a sinner that you heard the gospel, that you repented of your sin, and that you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, beloved, that's the truth for every single one of us. And if that ain't the truth of you, you've never been saved. If you've never saw you were a sinner, heard the gospel, repented of your sin, and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me say this. As we mature in our walk with the Lord... And as we diligently study His Word, we're going to come to find out that it was all of grace. It was all according to the purpose of God. It was all by His divine design that we are where we are this morning. We have heard the testimony of God's saints this morning. And every one of them highlighted how that God dealt with their heart. God never gave up on them. God never turned His back on them. God, even knowing all they would do, loved them anyway. And He set His affection upon them and made a plan to redeem them and accomplished what He set out to do. I love how God orchestrates a service. Had no idea the Lord would meet with us like He did this morning or that any of those who testified would testify. But I just kind of see it, God, as putting a big explanation point 
on what's being preached this morning. Salvation is of the Lord. And we magnify Him. And I believe this morning, if we'll pay close attention to the Word of God, God's going to reveal some family secrets to us that we can consider from His Word. Interesting to me this morning how God's purpose in salvation is so often in the Word of God connected to His purpose of sanctification. I thought about John's Gospel. This is my life verse. In fact, this is the verse God put in my heart when He was calling me to preach. John 15, 16. And He says this, For you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And this next phrase He says, And ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. God expects out of the lives of His children that He saves fruit. Sanctification. A life submitted to God. This is how He says it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And that's what I'm saying. You cannot separate sanctification from salvation. God's purpose in your life, God's will for our lives, every one of us, is to be like His Son. As much as our salvation was according to God's eternal purpose, let me just say this morning that these verses are teaching us that it also had to do with our sanctification. God's purpose is to sanctify us. Now, I want to look at these two verses and walk through them quickly this morning. I've got four thoughts this morning. I'll give them to you and then we'll go back and touch on each one. Number one, I want you to notice His predeterminate counsel. Number two, His purposed conformation. Not confirmation. Conformation. He is conforming us. Number three, His particular calculations. And number four, some practical considerations. Notice His predeterminate counsel. Now, we come to these two words, and again, there's a lot of controversy surrounding these two words, and there's a lot of labels that have been placed on it, but here's what I want to do. If you'll stay with me, and if you'll listen, I'm going to just use the Bible word, and I'm going to define it, and I'm going to tell you what God's Word says it means. Can we go along with that? Can we agree to believe whatever the Bible says and just leave the terminology off of it? I think we'll be alright if we do that. Notice he says this, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. First word there that catches our attention is the word foreknow. This means to know someone or something beforehand. Very simple. Now here in the context, it's not talking about what was foreknown, but notice whom was foreknown. Here God is not talking about a what, He is talking about a whom. And this term speaks of having an intimate knowledge of someone. It doesn't speak of just knowing someone generally speaking, but it speaks of knowing someone in a very detailed and personal way. Now, I know Brother Sam, but I don't know Brother Sam like Miss Jody knows Brother Sam. I have a knowledge of him She has an intimate knowledge of Him. She knows what makes Him happy. She knows what makes Him mad. She knows what His fears are. And as men, we don't like to let that kind of information out. 
But our spouses know us better than anyone else. That's the idea of the knowledge here. Hey, listen how Jeremiah spoke about it in chapter 1 of his prophecy in verse number 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. There it is. Knowledge. And before thou comest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet to the nations. Now this is what he told Jeremiah. I had an intimate knowledge of you before your parents ever even knew who you were. While you were still in the womb, I knew you, and I ordained you, and I have uh, sanctified you. Three aspects of knowing Him that God had, and twice He says, before He was formed, before He came forth. One Bible dictionary and a Greek word study define the word of foreknowledge this way. It means more than a previous knowledge. It speaks of the sovereign act of God foreordaining certain people to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Some think that foreknow means this. Now follow me. Some people will say foreknowledge means that God looked down through time and saw who would believe and thus chose them for salvation and sanctification on the basis of their faith. But look at the Word. The Word is not foresight. It's foreknowledge. It does not say for whom God did foresee. It says for whom God did foreknow. Now listen carefully. If God looked down through time and saw that somebody would do anything, and on the grounds of that information decided to do something in connection with it to bring that thing to pass, then God learned something. That's what it means. It means that the God we say knows all things don't really know all things and He learned something by looking ahead. And based on learning something that He didn't previously know, He decided to act in light of what He had learned. Now we know that isn't true this morning. We know that isn't true because the Bible tells us that we have a God who has all knowledge. That He's never learned anything. The Bible says, Who hath been His counselor? Who hath taught the God? Who hath, who hath instructed Him at any time? He's not one that should be instructed by men. He knows all things. He knows all things from beginning to end and everything in between because He's eternal. We can't comprehend God. We're bound by space and time. We only know things as they happen. God knows everything all at once because He's in eternity. Now, this word foreknow is very interesting. And I want to look at it in another passage of Scripture. Look at Acts chapter 2 with me real quickly this morning. And I think this will give us a better understanding of it. Acts chapter 2 verse 23. And this is Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching to all those Jews. And in his message he says, Him, speaking of Christ, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, if foreknowledge means what I said it doesn't mean, and some people will say it does, does that mean God looked down through time and saw what God would do and on the basis of what God would do decided that He would let God do that? That don't even make sense, folk. Foreknowledge doesn't mean God looked down and on the basis of knowledge decided to do something. But notice, let's look at these two words. Determinate counsel. Man, I like this. And you might not get a thing out of it, but it blessed my heart. The word determinate means to mark off the boundaries ahead of time. Literally, that's what it means. The word counsel means to purpose or plan or to act. 
To have an action. A course of action. And so the phrase was used in classical Greek of a council convened for the purpose of administering the affairs of government. In fact, it's often used in reference to the Roman Senate when they would meet together, just like our senators would meet together. That is a determinate council. They are convening to make a plan, a course of action for the future for our nation. It was also used of generals at the campfire councils on their march into battle. And from the discussions of these councils would come to a predetermined course of action that would best meet the circumstances that they would face on the march. Now in Acts 2.23, this is what Peter's saying. He's saying, we have a triune God who convened in council in eternity past. And the, and, and the, and, and the Godhead convened for the purpose of choosing out from the three persons of the Godhood, a Godhead, who would be the Lamb for sacrifice for the sins of God's people. The result of that deliberation is that Jesus Christ said He was willing to go. One man said that was the first mission conference that ever took place. It was within the realm of the Godhead, the triune God of heaven, meeting together and determining, predetermining that Jesus Christ would be the sacrifice for sinners who would come and it would all be based upon God's purpose. So you have predeterminate counsel. Now notice also in Acts 2.23 it says, and foreknowledge. Now the word foreknowledge here is connected by the conjunction and. That's important. It's connected to what's already been said. So he said determinate counsel and foreknowledge. It carries with it the meaning of foreordination or to foreordain. Just as a determinate counsel predetermines something, the idea here is that this foreknowledge is based upon a ordination or a choosing or a determination. And so you've got here the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now, Peter said it this way, 1 Peter 1.20, who verily was foreordained, it's talking about Christ, before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In other words, Jesus has always been God's only plan for salvation and Jesus' purpose to come and die for His people in eternity past. And that was based upon the foreknowledge and the, and the predeterminate counsel of God. God didn't look in the future. God said this is how it's going to be and He ordained it to be so. Here's the thing. Foreordained, 1 Peter 1.20. Foreknowledge, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And foreknow, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. All three the same Greek word. The same word. So we have foreknow. Then we have this word predestinate. That's another one that will make folks cringe, but let's just look at it. It's two Greek words compounded together. One of the words is horizo. It means to mark out the boundary or to set limits. Well, we do that for our children, don't we? We set limits. We've got boundaries. You're not allowed to do this, or you're not allowed to go there, you're not allowed to watch this, or you're not allowed to, whatever. We've got limits. We've got boundaries. You've got to go to bed by this time. You've got to, whatever. And then the next word is the prefix to it, and it just means before. And so you've got the idea then is to mark out the boundaries ahead of time. 
Predestinate means to set limits beforehand. It's where we get our English word, this horizo for horizon. Now, this is what I'm saying. Before the world began, God marked out the boundaries. He set the horizon for all who would be saved. And what is the boundary of that horizon? That boundary is that we must be conformed to the image of His dear Son. That's the boundaries. If you're ever going to be saved, if God's ever going to do a work in your heart, if you're ever going to come to know Him and the forgiveness of sin, God's boundaries, God's limit for your life is to be like Christ. That's what some have called counting the cost. Counting the cost. Understand this, God don't save any man, woman, boy, or girl to live their life however they want to. He saves them and He puts them within the boundary of being Christ-like. And it is His effort and He will accomplish all that He does to make us like Jesus. He's going to do it. What are you saying to us, preacher? I'm saying that before the world began, God's purpose for your life was that you be like Jesus. That's what I'm saying. You were foreordained and predestinated to take on the character and the qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the question. How are you shaping up? How am I shaping up today? Am I looking more and more like Jesus? Or am I looking more and more like Brandon? Because I promise you it's one or the other. And either God's working grace in my life and through His hand of dis- discipline in my life, and that's not a bad term. It's a good term. It can be bad when I disobey, but when I obey, it's a good thing. But He has His hand of discipline in my life making me like Christ. Understand this. God foreknew you before you were ever born. He knew you. You were already in His heart and mind. And God predestinated that you should be conformed to the image of His Son. Now that does pertain to salvation, but in the context, it pertains to you that are saved. God's purpose has been and always will be to make you like Jesus. He's predestinated you as a believer to be like Christ. That is God's purpose for your life. It's not by accident that you are saved. And listen, it will not be by accident that you're being sanctified. God is doing it on purpose. Notice number two, His purposed confirmation. It says to be conformed to the image of His Son. Notice the point here. This is the point, okay? Here's the whole point of sanctification. Every single person whom God knew before the world began, every single person that God predestined for salvation will be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the point. Hey, He is going to make you holy. And sometimes we don't know how He's going to do it, but He does it in ways we're not even looking. I love how these verses are connected. Verse 28, He he does all things according to His purpose. Verse 27, there He was talking about when we know not what we ought to pray for. We don't even know how to pray. Have you ever prayed and you went out and something happened to you that you didn't even know was going to happen and you didn't even know how to pray about that before it happened? You went out and got a flat tire. I taught somebody this week got a flat tire. Didn't somebody get a flat tire this week? There's old Vinny. Vinny got a flat tire this week. I bet you didn't pray about not getting a flat tire when you got up that morning, did you? Lo and behold, you got a flat tire. Here's what I'm saying. We don't even know what to pray for at times. We don't even know where we're going. Heads up, tails down, we don't know. But we know that God's got a purpose in our life. And we know that part of that purpose is to make us like Jesus. And we know He is going to accomplish His purpose in our lives. This is the point. 
If a person is not being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, then they don't know Him. They don't know Him. If there's never any move towards God in sanctification, then you don't know God. One man said this, This is the great law of conformity to type. As the bird life builds up a bird, the Christ life builds up Christ-likeness in the inward nature of men. In other words, there is no such thing as being saved without being like Jesus. And though there are times we might not be Christ-like, we are not Christ-like all of our lives. God will make us like Jesus Christ. And there may be a lot of repenting and a lot of tears and a lot of sorrow and a lot of confessing along the way, but He's going to make us like Jesus. That's the point. Here's the phrase, conformed to His image. This phrase means to be fashioned and formed in the likeness of another. God's not intended on making you your best self. God's not intended on you living your best life now. God's not interested in any of that. God's intention for your life and my life is to make us like Jesus. Well, how, what was Jesus like? Well, that'd be a good study, wouldn't it? Go to the Gospels and study the life of Jesus. That's what God wants us to be like. Firm in conviction, bold and courageous in the Gospel, but meek and lowly at the same time. Humble. A man of prayer, a man of holiness. A man who gave more than he took. The life of Christ. At conversion, God begins this lifelong process, doesn't He? Making us like His beloved Son. You say, well, why is God so interested in me being so much like His Son? Because He gets glory. We see the point, we see the phrase, here's the preeminence. That He might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's what it says. The word firstborn speaks of position. Speaks of prominence. Speaks of preeminence. In other words, Christ is going to have the preeminence among His brethren or among His redeemed is what it's saying. That whenever we get to the end of this thing and all of us get to heaven and we've been glorified and we're made holy and we're made perfect in the sight of God, Jesus is still going to outshine every last one of us. When all the sons of God gather home to God, Jesus will still have the holy position of preeminence among God's people. Why? Because He is the first. He is the highest. And He is the best. Because none of us who are sons would be sons if it wasn't for the firstborn son. And this is God's reason. That even after He takes wretched sinners such as I, and He does this miraculous work of grace in transforming our lives completely and glorifying us, at the end of the way, Jesus is still going to be far more eternally glorious than we are. And God's going to be receiving praise, honor, and glory as a result. His purpose, confirmation. Number three, His particular calculation. A calculation is just when you take one number and you put it with another number and you put it with another or you've got steps or you're calculating something out well god has a pretty particular calculator he's pretty good at doing math in fact he tells us here that there was an invitation there's a justification there's a glorification and he's got it all just in the order he wants it to be in he says first of all there's a divine invitation he says them whom he justified or them whom he predestined he called. Look at it. Verse 30. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. The word called means to bid one to come. It means to call one by name. It means to call out from a group of people. It is to firmly invite them. This isn't a passive thing. It's an active thing. When God saved us, it was by a firm invitation. 
What do you mean firm invitation, preacher? Well, I won't speak for you, but when God saved me, He called me unto salvation. I didn't want anything to do with God. I went to church kicking and screaming. Every time I went, I wasn't literally kicking and screaming unless my mom was whooping me, but I went to church whether I wanted to or not is the point. And uh, I didn't want to. But the night came when God invited me. And I didn't want anything more than to be saved the night He called me. I went to church wanting nothing to do with God. But when the time came that He spoke to my heart through the preaching of the gospel, there wasn't anything I wanted more than the very thing that I thought I wanted the least. And that was God. What are you saying? I'm saying He knew what buttons to push. (laughs) He knew what strings to pull. That's God. He came and got me good and lost. He hung me out over hell. He showed me how wretched and horrible I was. And He made me willing in the day of His power to come unto Him. That's the call of God. You've testified of it this morning, some of you. You've felt it and experienced it. Those of you that are saved and didn't testify when God called you. I've seen it in a lot of your lives, especially you young folk. I mean, that's a privilege as a pastor. I've got to witness God work in the hearts of most of all of our young people here. But what a privilege that is. And what an amazing thing it is. You can be sitting on that pew uninterested, thinking about what you'd rather be doing than where you're at. When all of a sudden, the God of heaven come upon you and arrest your soul. The antenna goes up, and it starts spinning. And a signal starts coming from another world. And God starts getting in your business and dealing with your heart. And you realize you need Him. And you call upon His name. What a a call. Let me just say, He is calling us who are saved to be sanctified though. And that's the idea here. It is a, a firm invitation. He's not saying be sanctified if you'd like to. It's kind of like when He called them disciples to follow Him. They did so. Without question. They probably could have resisted. I guess they could have. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, didn't say they did. But I promise you, He'd have got them if they did. He has a way of getting us where He wants us to be as His children. And that's the idea. Those that God has determined to save, He's determined to sanctify. And He's not only called you unto salvation, He has firmly called you, invited you, told you, I'm going to make you holy. Oh, God's good at calculating, isn't He? This is God's particular calculation in our life. He has called us. I've got to move on. I'm glad though that when He saved me, He didn't stop there. And He hadn't stopped in your life, and He's not stopped in my life. He is going to sanctify us. Notice not only called, He said, whom He called, He justified. It means to declare righteous. We know the word justification. Preached it here many times. It means to be judicially declared innocent. That as far as God is concerned, you are as righteous as Jesus is righteous. How righteous is Jesus? Oh, He's eternally righteous. And that's how God looks at you. As an eternally righteous child of God. Isn't that amazing? That His thoughts of you have no recollection of what you were before you were in Christ Jesus. Now that's shouting ground right there. A person can do a holy dance and do a little shouting on that ground. You remember what you were before God saved you, don't you? Some of you, does it still haunt your past? Do you ever wake up nightmares of 
things you used to do, places you used to go. But don't you know that never enters into the mind of God? I mean, he don't even, he don't even think about it. It ain't even there. It ain't even something he looks at and says, oh, I don't think I'm going to think about that today. He has chosen not to remember it. And he'll never remember it. Oh, he's justified us. But he's also glorified us. Glorification means to be brought into the full splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's final step in His plan for your life and my life. This speaks of our eternal state of perfection in heaven with our Lord. To be glorified is to be fully and finally conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Nothing lacking, nothing pending, nothing held up. Nothing on back order. This is the final calculation of God in sanctifying us unto Himself. Here's the thing that just amazes me is all of this is past tense. Have you noticed that? I'm not an English major, but I do have enough sense to know when something's present tense, past tense, or future tense. And he says, whom He did predestinate, He called, He justified, He glorified. And all of that is past tense say preacher he called me in the past well he did well I know he did he called me about 20 years ago it was in the past oh no he called you a long time before that but that's when it happened it's all past tense this is the point it's a done thing in the mind and heart of God remember this is his perspective he's going to make you holy and making you holy is a finished deal it's already done but it's being worked out in our lives by the grace of God. And it behooves us to cooperate with God as believers to be sanctified. Now some practical considerations from all of this. Some pretty deep theological truths here. It ought to cause us to rejoice. ought to cause us to worship God. Let me just say this. These truths are not meant to confuse. They're meant to comfort. They're meant to comfort. Some practical considerations is this. I've got three thoughts. I'll give them to you quickly. It gives us assurance. This is a very practical consideration from what I've preached to you this morning. It ought to bring assurance to your heart and soul. The doctrine of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of God's working out sanctification in our lives is meant not to make us mad, but to make us glad in the Lord. It is to comfort our hearts, as I said. It is to assure us that we are the children of God and that He is working all things out for our good and for His glory. And we can say that this morning. In Romans 8.28, all we are, are, are given is the fact that it's working for our good. But as you continue reading, verse 29 and 30 reveals it is for His glory. Well, that's assuring to me. When I don't know how to pray and I leave the house and I'm faced with something that I never saw coming and I didn't even know how to pray for, but at the end of the day, I can rest in this. God knew it was going to happen. The Holy Spirit already prayed for me. And God's working it all out for my good. And He's going to ultimately get glory through it all. Man, that brings assurance to me. It's all according to His plan, His perfect wisdom. Not only that, it gives assurance, but... This teaches us eternal security. <laughs> hey, if God's guaranteed to sanctify you, I mean, if it's a certainty that God's going to sanctify you, how are you ever going to lose salvation? 
I mean, if he says, I guarantee you, you're going to be like my son, Jesus Christ. How do you lose salvation when you're in that kind of relationship with God? I mean, God's purposes are bigger and before this world was ever created. Nothing can ever separate us from God. That's what verse 31 is going to say the very next verse as He ties it all together. What shall we say to these things? Who can separate us from God? If He has called us unto salvation, if He has purposed to sanctify us and make us like His Son, and He's the author of our salvation, for salvation, He is the beginning and the ending of it all, well, what can separate us from God? I'm eternally secure in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are eternally secure those who are saved by His grace. This is why once we are saved, we will forever be saved. You know, some will say, once saved, always saved. I believe that, but I think it's very abused in the day we live in. And let me just say this, I like to say, if saved, always saved. If you've ever truly been saved, you will always be saved. But you can't just say because you made a profession or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer, and then you went out and lived like the world the rest of your life, well, he made a profession. So he's saved. Once saved, always saved. No, he wasn't ever really saved or he'd have never went back and kept. Well, how can you say that? Because the verse number 29, them that God saves, he makes them like his son. If they really got saved, they'd have stayed in church, they'd have read their Bible, they'd have prayed, they'd have been like Jesus in their life, and they'd have died being sanctified and conformed to the image of God's Son. And the fact that they didn't die being conformed to the image of God's Son, Tells me they weren't really saved. That's the Word of God. That's not my idea. That's not me being mean. And if you've got an uncle or a cousin or a friend or a loved one that that's happened to, I'm not picking on you. My heart goes out to you and your family because it's a tragedy that anybody would believe the lie that because they did something, they're going to heaven even though God's never affected any change in their lives. But those of us that are being made more like Christ, what? A truth we find here. Eternal security. No force is great enough to stop God or mess up God's plan. And that's what's keeping me saved this morning. And that's what's keeping you saved. This gives us assurance. This teaches us eternal security. And then thirdly, this guarantees our sanctification. What a practical truth. Look, and this is practical God's going to make you and my holy. I've said that about five or six times, and there's a reason I've kept repeating it, because I'm wanting it to ring true in your heart and mine as well. God's going to make us holy. You know what that means? <laughs> you can either participate willingly, <laughs> or He's going to bring you along kicking and screaming. Hey, very practical stuff here. If your kid... broke your rules what would you do to them I just do whatever you want I don't care I know better than that my mom and I love my mom I, I don't disrespect her in saying this but she was one of them moms that you were going to do what was right but sometimes you were going to do what was right just because she was not going to be embarrassed by you some of y'all had mamas like that probably. 
It wasn't always just because this is right, this is wrong, and she was teaching us through it. It was, you're not going to embarrass me. And if I ever did something that would embarrass her in public, whoo, buddy, you better believe it. It was on. And it wasn't waiting until we get to the house. I mean, right there in front of everybody, I've had her run me in circles, whooping my hind end in the middle of a grocery store. That's what we need in a lot of families this day and age. The kids would benefit a whole lot from a good old-fashioned whooping. Right in the middle of Walmart or James' Super Saver, it might teach them a little lesson on listening to mom and dad. But listen to me. That's how God is with us. I mean, not because He's embarrassed, but because He loves us. And He says, you're going to straighten up, and you're going to be like my son, willingly, or I'll straighten you up, and I'm going to make you like my son, anyhow. This is very practical. If you ain't cooperating with God this morning in the realm of your sanctification, you better buckle up. You're in for a ride. Because God knows how to get the attention of His children. You better start paying attention. You better start looking at your life. You better start examining yourself. You got some sin. You open the door for some areas in your life for sin to creep in. Are you entertaining some things that you shouldn't be entertaining? You better... Pay attention. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. You were purchased with a price. You are not your own. Your body is a temple of the Lord. And He's going to make you holy. And if you start tampering with that, He will take you to the woodshed. He will chasten you. He will correct you. He has the ability to do so. And He has the reason for doing so. And that is He loves you. God won't let His children live any old way. He won't let us live any way we want to live. And if you're trying to live your way and not God's way, if you belong to Him, He'll get your attention. Very practical truth here. He guarantees sanctification. Right here in this text, He guarantees it. And so, may God help us to be a sanctified people, to walk in holiness, to... Turn from ungodliness. To have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of this world. The works of darkness. To be not unequally yoked with unbelievers in our lives. Whether it be in friendships or whatever it may be. That would cause us to stumble in our walk with God. And to be hindered in our sanctification. We have a responsibility in this. But this is sanctification from God's point of view. And He will accomplish it. Let's bow our heads this morning.